Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. So last week I spoke with Christian Barros and our talk was so good that we decided to go in for the double dip. If you didn't listen to that first half, Christian and I spoke about his time working in New York City and Anguilla. In this second half, Christian walks me through how a wine program at a country club differs from its restaurant counterpart. We also dig into what it means to be a wine professional because Christian's had the opportunity to invest in some really interesting projects, including some wine tourism where he's led trips to South America. We also talk about his favorite emerging wine region, uh, the Okanagan Valley of British Columbia in Canada. Here's part two with Christian discussing the River Oaks Country Club. So anyways, um, I'm trying to think how we want to start this, but we had such a good conversation the other day that we just wanted to do round two. Yes. So I think we left off... Because I'm too long-winded. Ah! <laughs> you're, you're, you're breezy. I wouldn't say long-winded. There's like a slight breeze. Yeah. It's not super windy. Okay. Me- medium wind. Okay, that's uh-huh. fair. I'll use that. Uh, but, uh, dang, we were talking about country clubs and what it's like working in a country club compared to working in a restaurant. Because, I mean, there is a restaurant on site in the country club, right? Like, actually, I've, I've only ever been to River Oaks Country Club one time. Okay. And it was for some, like... Bar association event, actually. Uh, But, like, what's the vibe there? I know you guys do, like, clay court competition. You've got the golf course. You've got restaurants. Like, what's the situation there? Well, well, I can only speak for a large club, uh, and it's a neighborhood club, for sure. The River Oaks Club was kind of built with the neighborhood in mind um, at the very beginning, uh, almost 100 years ago. Um, And it still plays that way. The majority of the folks who are members there live within that zip code. You know, there's some folks that come from outside, um, but it's meant for people to spend a lot of time with their families there, have their holidays there, et cetera, their weddings, right? That kind of thing. So the event side of it's very active. And what I was talking about with Anguilla in terms of being prepared and getting ready for a family to come see you for a week or two weeks once a year, this was 1,600 members or 1,600 families, you could say. Um, that you have to be prepared for potentially every day. And I would say probably about 30%, 20% of those members spend at least three, three days of their week there. Wow. Part of, if not all, right? So that's frequency as well. And so along, along those lines, my, my mind had to change a little bit towards how do you shift culture um, more importantly, how do you create culture? And the club was big enough, and, and I had access to enough of a span of age group um, for the most part. Really? Because like, when I think country club, I don't think young people, you know? Yeah, but I guess young gets kind of reclassified in a club because the juniors are around you know, their 30s, mid-30s. Oh, really? Uh, and, and in the general sense, I... You know, I, I like to think of 30 and 40 as very young, um, but, but we always tend to think as young as 20-year-olds or whatever. But for the most part, uh, the 30 to 45-year-old set increased tremendously, um, mm. even in the 11 years I was there. Now, that's not the case for every club. The average age will shift depending on many things, uh, economic uh, situations, how the city's doing. Um, and, and, and there's no question that the bulk of the membership probably beefed up in the 80s. Um, 
with 40-year-olds in the 80s or 30-year-olds in the 80s who would now be in that 60 to 70-year-old range. So yeah. that was the group or the, or the age group that ran the club. Hmm. But that's good. That's a good group to run a club like that. Why? Um, for a couple of reasons. There's still, for the most part, uh, folks that ask to be on the board in that age group, let's call it 60 to 75, are still employed. They're still working. For the most part, they're also CEOs, they're bosses, they run their own companies, multiple companies, they're busybodies, they're A personalities. And C, uh, they have grandkids or younger grandkids, older kids, uh, and they've kind of adapted to technology and um, they're used to seeing their kids on, you know, their grandkids on the phone all day. They've probably, probably stood by while their kids raised, you know, multiple kids sometimes. And so they've seen two generations of children uh, brought up in very different uh, periods of time. And they understand that the club needs to be ready for the influx of millennial types who will be members in the next five to 10 years. So they're not like super protectionist over membership or like just like standards within the club. Maybe they are, but like it sounds like they're open to the idea of like a different generation coming in after them. I think so. And some, some are resistant to it. I'm not saying everybody who is standing there, there are people that purposely get on the board because tradition comes first. Hmm. And the tradition sometimes um, takes precedent over anything, or even, even the point of why you're doing whatever event you're doing. So sometimes those, those kind of events or those kinds of important activities that they, that they program need to evolve. Uh, and I think the best way to help those evolve is through food and beverage. And when I came on, uh, I already felt that the want to move forward in terms of the wine program was there. I would say that it was probably almost an A program when I got there. But I would, I would say I was able to push it to an A, like asterisk or A plus uh, program because we had plans um, of, what, of big picture initiatives that we were actually able to put into play. And along those lines is one really big part of buying for a country club, which is that committee needs to make a decision. Are you going to buy for future generations? Are you going to be okay with spending some of the, the money earmarked for wine, spending a big chunk of it on wine that you very, very possibly will never have a chance to try? And I got the green light early on. I forced the green light to a certain mm. extent. There were some great opportunities at the time to buy volume in Bordeaux and Burgundy as well. And I felt that was a good avenue to go. Uh, it was 2009. We were on the back, you know, the back end of 05 Vintage. There was still some lingering 05. So uh, with the help of some committee folks, we made some big swings on 05 and a little bit of 2000. And then from then on, four years later, you know, we were pushing hard on 2009-2010, uh, which were gr two great vintages for Bordeaux and Burgundy as well. So, we, you know, that, that was certainly opportune, uh, an opportune uh, timing situation for me because I was able to create some culture, get some wine in the pipeline in the reserve cellar, um, and then start to pick off some of the older wines without the fear of, I don't have anything to back this up. I didn't want to have a huge gap. And it already seemed like there would be. Because when I got there, they were selling like 1991st growth Bordeaux still on mm. the list for like double the cost. But the cost back then was like 
$100. Yeah, that's wild. So if you look at a wine list in 2009 when I got there and you're able to get a 1990, let's call it fill in the blank, like Pichon Lalonde, the second label, and it's $150 on the list, that's under cost for current vintage. So we had to fix that as well. And just like we were talking before about pricing, the important part was to have an algorithm or a pricing schedule that kind of took into consideration every price point, who was targeted towards, and then leave ourselves the ability to be improvisational about it and also adjust for market. That was the key, adjust for market. Because if you were in the wine committee one year and 10 years later, you remember vividly paying $50 for a wine, but let's say that blank wine has gained notoriety, is, is a lot more difficult to get 10 years later, and then it's on a list for 200 If you want to look at just the numbers, you'll be like, I can't believe they marked up that wine four times. I wanted, <laughs> I wanted to order it 10 years later since I was part of the purchase, and yeah. I didn't want to pay 200 I wanted to pay 100 at most. Yeah. But you have to adjust to market because if you leave the gap, then when that next vintage comes out, then, yeah, then you're priced happens. out of market. You can't even put it on the list, right? So we adjusted all the time. We left ourselves that, but also providing value, always providing value. So I feel like that's especially important at a country club where you're already paying so much money just to be there, just to drink the tap water you're paying. That's right. God knows how much money. So right. I mean, like for wine, were you mostly operating on that like 50% cost of goods? I was, op- yeah, 50 is a good number. Matter of, uh, matter of fact, for country clubs, on the blended cost, if you're over 50, um, you're providing great value to your membership. And what that really means is on the high end, uh, there were wines we were selling at 80% cost. Lots of them. But when you think about banquets, and we custom, we had a separate banquet list, uh, and some of the by the glass fed the banquet list and vice versa, we would have some placements that were 20 to 25 cost a year. So on the blend, you wanted to land just on the wine in that $50 range. Mm. We were probably closer to 55, between 52 and 55 the whole time I was there. And I had to adjust to what the, what the amount of business, the kind of business we were doing on the banquet side. Because when you have a heavy banquet year, all of a sudden you can see yourself, your cost of goods sold shrink. That's fine because you have more money uh, on the table at the end. But the idea was to try to keep that number the same, that metric the same, as the product mix changes, adjust for it. So we should have been providing better value on the wine side, on the a la carte wine side, if we were doing that well on the banquet side. So what would make for like a busy banquet year? Just like by coincidence, a bunch of members or having their kids getting married that year? Or is it like related to anything else? It's good. It's cyclical in terms of age. Yeah. So you, you will see situations where there's a bunch of members, for example, who were in the 65, 68 in that range of age. All of them in one particular year will have a granddaughter who turns 21 in the same year. And now all yeah. of a sudden for the presentation ball or the debutante, there are now in a given year 25 or 30 different young girls being presented. Wow. And then the next year could be like 10. What's your go-to debutante wine? <laughs> well, well, what do you champagne, do? champagne. We sell Rose champagne. champagne? We sell as much champagne as we can for the dead ball because their families come to celebrate as well. They're all sitting at a table minimum of 12 people. So we're looking at large format. We're looking at bubbles. We're looking at some of their favorite Bordeaux, uh, birth vintage Bordeaux, if you can make that work. And we were getting better you know, meeting that demand the longer I was there because we had already put a lot into reserve. And mm. I made sure I bought back vintages when I could as well. But 
the best way I could explain to you this particular club, we averaged between 10 and 15 events per day when wow. we were open. So give me a random day. Random day. Okay. What's making up 10 to 15 Great, great events? question. So let's say it's a Tuesday. You might have a Bible breakfast for some of the ladies who are in this particular Bible breakfast club. And then Two you, things I know nothing about, breakfast and Bibles. <laughs> yeah. Then know. you might have in another room, you might have a, a special meeting um, of some folks who are on the committee for the debutante ball, okay, the, for the presentation ball. Uh, so that's an event, right? You need to provide food and wine. Then there might be a, an internal meeting for the management. Uh, we would have our uh, internal manager meeting every week, and that might happen on the third floor. Um, at the same time, late, sorry, in a couple of more hours after that, around two in the afternoon, you might have a tasting for five because, uh, or six because the bride and, and the groom and their parents are all tasting food for their wedding coming up in three months. And then, um, another event could be over by the poolside. You'd have bingo on Tuesday nights. I, I think it was Wednesdays, but let's call it a Wednesday. So you have to set up for bingo and there needs to be somebody to call the bingo and here's the material for the bingo. This is the snacks and the drinks wild. up here. So there's a BEO, a banquet event order for every one of them. And there were days when we're very busy where you have 20, or 20 to 30 in a day. So think about the tennis tournament. On any given day, we have just about 25 to 30 BEOs per day for that event where we're using the entire club for this one you know, eight-day event. And, and for people that don't know, for listeners that don't know about the clay court tennis tournament that you guys host, I feel like that's one of the biggest events that goes on in the city every year. Yeah. What's the vibe with that? It's pretty cool because it brings out a lot of folks uh, who are interested in tennis because it's a professional field of tennis players, ATP tournament. And there has been some really marquee players that have played through it and, and stay loyal to it. Uh, and they continue to come back and, and play it often. So you get to watch high-level professional tennis on an old-school clay court. Um, that uses the same kind of clay as Roland Garros and, you know, for the French Open. And it's really well organized. It's televised. It used to be, when I first got there, only the final was televised, which is on a Sunday. But by the time I left, they were televising everything but the qualifiers, pretty much. Hmm. And the awesome part of that is there's some local talent or, or uh, tennis players who have made it into the first round or whatever through qualifiers. So... You'll get some momentum. And, and if there are international players, of course, Houston, Houston has folks from all over the world. Uh, if Whether they were tennis fans or not, uh, I'm from Chile, so I remember that they were, like the third year I was there, there were two Chilean players who were high profile. One of them had been a number one player. And the two of them were in the tournament, and they were both in as du- on du- doubles as well. Hmm. And there was probably a pack of about 50 Chileans that live in We don't have many Chileans in in Houston at all, but all 50 of them well. were in the same section holding their flag and chanting and being as loud as you Drinking possibly. some Casa La Postol, baby. Maybe, maybe. That's probably what we were selling them because we, we had La Postol Merlot on the banquet list. But by the time I left there, uh, JP, who worked with me, um, and she was the lead psalm, but she and I, I would be on one side of the, final, the finals court opening a bottle of a magnum of Domainat Rosé, and she'd be on the other side opening a bottle of Cristal. The right. domain not yeah. follows you. The domain not followed me in a big way. And it took a while to, to heat up. I mean, there was a lot of folks who knew it if they were folks who vacationed either in the south of France or in St. Bart's 
uh, and knew about this craze that probably, in my opinion, I remember seeing it as a big deal. Like in the late 90s, I was there backpacking and I happened to coincide when, uh, what's the film um, festival they do there? The Cannes Film Festival. I was in Nice and I went up to Cannes just to see the craze. And on the boats, everybody was drinking uh, Domain Out. So that was my first glimpse of it. So. That's funny. Well, people always talk about like steakhouse wine is big, full-bodied Napa Cab, right? Mm-hmm. People talk about or wines Bordeaux. of... Or Bordeaux, exactly. Yeah. Is there a country club wine? And is it any different than a steakhouse wine? It's a good question. It's similar to the steakhouse wine, I would say. When I, when I got to River Oaks, no question. I would say there's still a lot of clubs that still run this, a similar program as a steakhouse. Just a, you know, a simplistic version of, for example, Pappas, right? Because yeah. we have plenty of steakhouses that have pretty simple lists, but the Pappas wine list is huge and, and, and it's, uh, it covers so much ground. But I would say ours morphed into somewhere between, and this will be something that you can relate to, somewhere between steakhouse, good steakhouse, mm-hmm. I mean, good wine program steakhouse, Houston's, All right. somewhere in the middle there. And then we did have, uh, a good mixture of interesting wines that kind of blended in. But it, it happened through creating culture. And that's what I meant. Like, I made, it, I made it a point to bring Willamette Valley Oregon wine to the club. Now, there were probably one or two SKUs on, on the wine list before I got there, uh, ones you would expect, like Domaine Serene or Ponzi, right? And not putting those down, those are great producers. But I... The way, I, the way I figured to do it was to create an event around it to introduce it first. Only way to do that is to introduce the actual people. So in 2011, we did a wine invitational. We invited anybody who wanted to pay, member or not member, there was a non-member price, hmm. to come, and it was a two-day symposium. Guy Stout, he was the moderator for the, uh, like the round table that we did, and we had one representative from each sub-appellation in Willamette Valley. And that's really cool. And they were all big hitters. It was like... Louisa Ponzi and Eric Hamaker and anybody who was up there was an expert at their sub-appellation. And it was just a a really nonstop 48-hour takeover of the club. And to this day, some of the relationships that came out of those events are members keep. There are some members who have been to those wineries three or four times since. They're friends with the vintners. They're friends with the national sales managers. They're friends with the winemaker. They know everybody and they've Hung out with them, gone out to dinner with them. Hell yeah. And so that's the part where if you're humble enough to understand it, and I'm not sure if I always was, but by the time I left, I was, was I am here to bring people together. I'm the vehicle that could bring this wine and this winemaker in front of this family or this You're the glue, baby. And you bring it together and let the magic happen after that. I don't, yeah. have, I don't have the magic to take my private plane and go pick up this winemaker because I want them to come to a wine dinner at my house. Yeah. But there certainly are members who can. And as long as I'm still involved or I'm somewhere in between and my relationship gets fostered from that, mm-hmm. then it's almost like the work's happening for me. The work's being done on my behalf, but also benefiting me. Yeah. Because in the end, the bond becomes even more memorable because the vintner thinks, how did I even meet these folks? I can't <laughs> remember. You know what? It was because oh, right. of, it was Christian. Yeah. It was because of Christian because of this event. Really, it's because of the club, right? Yeah. But when you think about who was the catalyst, who's the one that pushed this along, who had the idea to bring us all together, 
uh, it was me in that case. And I, and I think that that role is something that I've always been very comfortable in, is the idea of bringing folks together. And I think I touched on it uh, when we spoke earlier, but that, voca- that idea, idea of giving people vocational advice in regards to being a wine professional is something that I take very seriously because it wasn't easy for me. I'm not saying it's easy for anybody now because it's way more competitive. There were less people competing for less spots then, whereas nowadays there's too many people competing for a lot more spots. But given this year, yeah, I believe there's going to be less positions available. It's already you can already see it for a much bigger, hungry audience of aspiring wine professionals who would like to get experience in a good place. You know, it's funny you say that because I previous episode. Uh... I was chatting with Rachel Del Rocco, who was a psalm at Camerata Wine Bar. Before that, she was a wine buyer in other markets. Uh, and then she found herself working for Wine and Spirits Magazine in New York and then started this e-newsletter for the Vintner Project. And what she was saying in the episode when we were chatting was how just because you enjoy wine doesn't mean there's a very narrow definition of what you can do. Like, you can do any number of things. You can work in the wine industry, and there's, like, many different kind of, like, little paths you can take right of course kind of like a choose your own adventure but sometimes it can feel so limiting because you think well if i want to work in wine i have to be a sommelier or in order to be successful in wine i need to get this certification or do this thing but then also like you're talking about a wine professional it's a much broader and probably more accurate term for a lot of people than just sommelier right yeah i think it's something that should should start to become part of our language it doesn't have to be in, in terms of the wine industry I'm going to give you a perfect example of somebody who has an excellent and well-rounded training all the way through. Jack Mason, who's the, an MS here in town, he got it when he was super young. He's the first one to say there's so much left to learn. He has a humble disposition because he passed his MS at 27. Um, and also, uh, he's done it on his own merit. Like nobody, really nobody sponsored him, whatever he did it on his own. But before that, he went to CIA to study uh, how to be a chef. Then he went to Cornell to study the ins and outs of business, of, of hospitality business specifically. And from there, uh, got really into the wine side of it and then learned that part. And then was on the floor as a psalm multiple places until he got a wine director job uh, at a high volume place uh, and had a couple of different positions where he was the buyer. And then ultimately came back here for Pappas. So I kind of told his trajectory that really covers... I, I would, if you want to add it all, maybe 15 years, right? Mm-hmm. But in those 15 years, he has, without maybe intending to, rounded out his uh, knowledge and his uh, competencies in relation to wine, yeah. like an all-rounder. And I think the world of wine, of course, same thing. It has a ton to offer, but like, how are you going to shape your career? You know, it, nobody has the ability to shape it exactly the way they want. But through what you and I have talked about, uh, whether it was me being on the floor being the wine runner because I understood the labels, but I was still 19, so they didn't let me open the bottles at Carlton on the Park. Eventually, it got too busy, so I just would open the bottles with nobody looking, yeah. and then I would just open all the bottles before I even <laughs> you know, was technically allowed to do it in that establishment. It was an t- all-tuxedo place, but I was running for the whole – it was a, like a little mansion. I had to run to the banquet side or the third floor. We had an A-frame. A Havana cigar wine bar, a cigar bar, right. and then we had a wine cellar downstairs. Anyway, um, it taught me how to move quickly, not make mistakes, read the label, read the ticket, uh, get it to the right table. You know, we had systems on who you knew, 
uh, how to figure out who ordered at the table so you went to the right person, et cetera, et cetera. So from there, um, I was lucky enough to have a series of jobs, many jobs, either different uh, cuisine, different size restaurant, um, wine steward, sommelier, wine director, uh, and then resort wine director, which at the time my title was resort sommelier, which turned into wine director. Once we had two restaurants, we ran off property, three restaurants on property, to coming here to Tasty Room, which was a multi-unit with a restaurant attached as well, which Max's Wine Dive. So I was buying for Max's and three of the of the wine bars and the main wine bar at uh, up what was it Post Oak? No, Uptown Park. At Uptown Park was the highest selling wine bar, the highest sell highest grossing wine bar in the U.S. that year. Wow. Yeah, dollar for dollar. And that year also, Del Frisco's open. That account was only second to them in terms of how many how much wine they bought, and that's only because Del Frisco was, was just opening at Galleria Mall. That's wild. So the amount of wine that was running through that was crazy. So you're dealing with huge numbers. You're dealing mm. with multiple pallets. Whereas in Anguilla, I was sometimes talking about three cases of something very expensive that I knew would take three weeks to come, and I had to time it just right so I could pick it up at the dock. That's totally, wild. totally different speed. And then going to a country club to say, hey, you know what? Me on the floor is not as important the first couple of years. Well, I shouldn't say that. Me on the floor is less important the first couple of years because I'm trying to rebuild the program from the ground up. So the program needs to speak for itself in the way that it's evolving. Then I spent a lot of time on the floor. Then I started developing a team. So we grew from three people to, to as big as five, and then almost six when I was gone, we had somebody part-time. So we had five plus a wine steward that came in part-time. And by the time I left it, it doubled. we had doubled in size, we had doubled in sales too. Hell yeah. Much more than double. And more important than that, we had created a culture. So that's really where, and, and really, I'm making my own case for wanting to call myself a wine professional, but ultimately it, it, it doesn't make a difference to me whether somebody called me a SOM or a wine director or a, you know, a sales director like what I'm doing now. Um, I like to feel that under that umbrella of wine professional, I should have enough experience and have enough competency in doing enough things within the wine industry and an understanding of even the parts that I haven't done so that I can make really good decisions for blank, the owner of this distributor, blank, the owner of this restaurant, blank, my restaurant, you know, it could, yeah. it could be what, whatever it is you choose to do. So but what do you call yeah. what you do with Vinovative? Like, what's that? Vinovative is kind of, the, it's really the same idea. Uh, mm-hmm. And what it is, is just like the name would suggest. It's, one, it's innovative experiences, innovative transactions uh, having to do with wine. So I've never sat down and written down exactly what I want to do outside of the main three things that I started doing, which was one, I would have no problem going and doing an evaluation of somebody's seller, doing an inventory, and then from there making an evaluation of current value and giving them suggestions on what to do if they wanted to dump someone. That's how it started. Then from there, I got opportunities to do just the opposite. Oh, this person is interested in this particular a region, they just got bitten by the French bug and they want to buy all mm-hmm. kinds of wines from France. They want to scrap all their domestic stuff. Not all, but most. So I'm going to help them sell part of what they want to part with for the most money that they can get. Sometimes that's break, break even, especially if you bought stuff that really doesn't appreciate. Sometimes it's less than break even. But then on the flip side, purchase for them with, and make decisions 
Should I buy from an auction house? Should I help them buy from a retailer? Or should I help them buy from another collector? Because if you have two collectors, one wants something that the other one has, why yeah. not make the transaction happen between those two people? And then finally, the last part was the wine travel, wine travel part. And it's more of a bespoke uh, wine tourism approach to doing to giving people exclusive experiences through the lens of a wine professional or a song, right? Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do is give them the same experience that you and I have when we go to a yeah. wine. As close as I can get. The way I can sell that, right, the easiest way to sell that is if you're bringing along guests uh, and clients who have a big appetite to buy wine, mm-hmm. that, that opens all doors, especially if there's re- great residuals on both end, on both sides, because yeah. the, the, the winery, the vintner wins, right, when they make a big sale. But you could even stop and think about the people who serve them in, in, you know, for a lunch or for a, a picnic or whatever we do. They're learning something about folks from a certain area. In this case, yeah. it might be people from Houston. Um, and then, of course, the flip side of that is those clients then become fans of the region and those wines immediately. So to get on that itinerary is a big deal. And the more a region realizes how viable your group is in terms of how healthy um, the purchasing side of it after the experience happens, they're super motivated to be part of it and also try to make it as VIP as possible. Maybe even better than for a buyer. So I've had good experiences now in Chile. uh, Yeah, like what part of Chile would you go to? Okay, so um, Chile's challenging uh, because it's spread out certainly but in the central area you can feasibly move between Viña del Mar to Santiago and every place in between Casablanca Valley San Antonio uh, Valley and then you can get to Maipo um, and you can cover three very important regions in the course of like three days then of course it's a bigger commitment to go two and a half hours to go down to Colchagua if that's what you wanted to do and go see some of the, the big gun wineries like Montes or Lapistol. So on this last one that I did this year in January, we did it right before all this. I had Boots on the Ground, a partner who's amazing. Her name is Liz Kasky, and she specializes in doing gastronomic experiences all throughout South America, and she lives in Santiago. Um, we did one in 2011, and we did one this year. So it was nine years in between, but we did some events <laughs> in between. But this one was so had a, such a a large scale like big scope to it in terms of how we're going to vip it that we moved to many more regions because we did the last part all in helicopter wow so we were able to for example hit the only winery that's uh that's in a a little a little town called miyawe which is over the mountain from colchagua but it takes 45 minutes to drive around all the way to the highway down and around to get mm-hmm. to miyawe Maybe 50 minutes from Colchagua to Miawe, but it's really across the mountains. If you were to, to drive over, it would take you 10, 15 minutes. That's wild. So we flew over in seven minutes. And That's we, wild. And we went slow and watched everything along the way, but we basically flew from uh, Vignavik, which is the only winery in Miawe, which is huge, um, and it's state-of-the-art, beautiful. And we flew from there over to Montes and had lunch at uh, Francis Malman's restaurant yeah. in the back. So it was pretty cool to roll up there in two helicopters and we go in there. To That's have pretty lunch. sick, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's fun for everybody all the way around because it's a first for people. And when you find oh, yeah. people, uh, when you find 
or when you have a clientele that's well healed and you know has the money to do whatever they want, when you could do something that they've never done before, for example, fly into this winery that you probably wouldn't get these tours unless you were invited or knew the owner, it, it's very memorable. Oh, totally. And for me as well, because I get to be the, a participant yeah. <laughs> as well. So I'm actually getting to enjoy the, the product that I'm delivering uh, and that these wineries are delivering as well. And it was, you know, phenomenal. And my plan is to eventually make that uh, a yearly trip, the chili trip. Mm-hmm. That's the side of me where I got a chance to really learn, have a lot of respect for event planners and for people who, who plan, itinerary, plan itineraries for big groups. So it's, it's a lot of pressure because yeah. you're counting on a lot of other people to come through for you. Uh, and and, and it, you can't control it all the way through, uh, but you can try. And Liz and I do a really good job. I do a good job of controlling what I'm going to, you know, the, the group mm-hmm. that we're taking and, you know, what their personality is and what their tolerance for time and for standing and for drinking is. Yeah, because I'm sure every single one of those people, so often like when you visit wineries, if you're on a trade tasting, right, there's always that one person that's dragging behind, yeah. you know, the last one to wake up, last one to come down. You Somebody know. hung over who doesn't even yeah. make it. Yeah. And I will tell you, in all the trips I've done, I've never had one person even be late for, hey, let's be... I've been the only one who's been close to late, but I've never been late. I try to be, try to be the first one now. But yeah. we would have 6.30 morning calls and everybody looks like a million bucks at 6.30, even though the night before we drank. So these are professional wine travelers. Of course, I consider myself one as well. I better be if I'm in this business. But it requires moderation. It requires timing. It requires yeah. taking care of yourself too before you go because it's, it's, you've been on wine trips that are intense. This isn't quite that. It's not that death march with five wineries or six wineries in a day. This is two in a day. Hmm. But we spend a little more time, have lunch with the, you know, with the winery owner or with the winemaker, uh, really break bread. And oh, every yeah. time I'd add a different piece. So when I did Sonoma a couple of years ago, I decided I, add a, I wanted to add a piece to include some of the other wineries that weren't part of our, our itinerary. Mm-hmm. So we invited just the winemaker or the principal. All they had to do to, for price of admission was to bring a magnum of wine. So hmm. we ended up doing a dinner with everybody, which ended up being like 22, 23 people. Wow. And everybody bought a Magnum. We went through, it was 22 of us who went through 28 Magnums one night. Holy shit, Papa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At Chalkboard Bistro. Uh, and ate a ton of food. But I'll tell you what, the next day everybody was perfect. I can't mm-hmm. speak for the winery folks, because they were having the best time of all. Yeah. But to get to try out of large format, back vintage, and, and fill in all the blanks for Sonoma for places we didn't stop. Mm. like. Kistler was nice enough to, Jeff Lubisky was nice enough to drop off two magnums of Kistler and stuff like that oh, without yeah. even attending the, the dinner because they knew they were getting the wines in front of a captive audience and that everybody was going to take into consideration what they were tasting. Is there a region that you haven't taken people on a tour at that you're interested in doing? I would love to do, but first thing is I'd have to go scout it out uh, beforehand. I'd love to do British Columbia, specifically Okanagan Valley. Um, and I think there's enough there to, to, to put together a great trip and maybe a post trip to Whistler or something, you know, something yeah. like that. What I try to do is because I only want four days of wine, maximum four, four and a half, but I want them to piggyback. Like when we did Chile, you know, back in 2011, we did it and a lot of them went to Machu Picchu after. Oh, word. Some of them went to Buenos Aires, to Argentina. Um, so the, the snowballed hangover after like four days of like drinking like that yeah. to then like Machu going Picchu. to super high elevation Machu Picchu, like that's got to be a brutal like next day. And it's funny you say that because believe it or not, one of the people who was on the 2011 trip realized that they needed to have a stent put in. He's a, he's a physician as well. 
he needed to have a stent put in because he was short of breath at Machu Picchu. So Machu Picchu taught him a lesson that might have been a lot more costly than it was, but he ended up uh, taking care of himself. And, Holy and, guacamole. Yeah, yeah, that would have been a mess. But we encourage them to try to do it, if it's <laughs> rigorous, to try to do it before. Do, the do the one. preemptive stent. Do it first. Get your yeah. stent before you go on one of Christian's <laughs> Right, trips. right. Yeah. Or go down to, you know, some of them went down to, um, uh, why can't I remember that? Way down south. You go to south of Chile and Argentina, what are you going to see down there? Uh, Antarctica? No, no, no. Not Antarctica. Um, a little bit higher. Patagonia? Patagonia. Oh, okay. Sorry, it just escaped me. But Patagonia was a, was a popular trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of them go to Patagonia anyway. They go to those areas to go fish. Oh, there's so good they, wine now coming out of Patagonia, right? That's right. So they knew, they knew their way around the south of Chile already, mm. which is kind of awesome because I didn't know my way around. I'm, my family's from Chile, and I didn't get to travel to the south of Chile until I went to school there. So hmm. I'd never even been down there. So go into the Gonia. Yeah. But I'd love, back to what we said, I'd love to go to BC, but I'd have to scout it out first. Only because I think it's a frontier that really you would assume that we would know inside and out. It's just north of us. It's Canada, the whole bit. But here, here's where some of the business stuff gets in the way. In BC, first of all, throughout Canada, you're encouraged to buy wines from your province. Wines from one province to another is seen, but it costs money to, to move the wine from one place to the other. Even in this day and age, like the price level is, a lot, is higher once you move it from one province to another. Mm. Don't ask me to explain it, but I've read on it, and I was like, that's really weird. Now, when we first always think about Canadian wine, most people in the wine business immediately think uh, Niagara Peninsula. Uh, they're thinking about ice wines. They're thinking about Inniskillen, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Jackson Treggs, this kind of... They're thinking about those sweet wines. They don't really know a lot about the western side, the BC side, where they're amazing dry reds. It's a dry classic dynamic, east coast versus west coast, east side versus west side. Yeah, you know, I yeah. Mean. And the west side of it doesn't have enough exposure because why? Because that area is a really great place to visit. So it's, part, it's a, more of a touristic destination, kind of how Napa was at one point as well, right? So you travel out there because it's a beautiful place to be in. Mm -hmm. You're going to see beautiful landscapes. It's fairly cheap to taste wine there still now. Because most of their sales happen through DTC, direct to consumer. So they were well set up for this pandemic or whatever anyway. Most of it's DTC. If you've been out there, you might be on their mailing list and you can get it shipped direct. That's where the winery makes their most profit. They haven't ventured over to the distribution side because they don't, they don't want to part with that much of their, of their money. Because yeah. you, Why sell it at a lower price to a distributor that's just going to market up themselves when you can sell it direct to that individual? 100%. Yeah. Is there a lot of Pacific Ocean influence there? Like, is it a maritime climate? Is it more kind of like continental? It's, uh, well, here's the thing. Just like Washington, uh, you have the, the effect, the rain shadow effect of the Cascade Mountains. You have a mountain mm. range up against the coast. On the other side, you have virtually no rain. So it's almost desert-like on the ground floor. Mm. Uh, it was a huge glacier. So Okanagan Valley essentially was an ancient glacier. So it's glacial deposits with sand and silt. Uh, but underneath, you'll find granite. Um, granite where you can grow amazing Riesling. Granite where you could uh, grow uh, Grenache and blends like you would in Priorat. Um, and so the soil types are very varied around that lake because Okanagan Lake runs north to south, but it's about 80 miles. And across that way, up north, they're making bright whites and uh, blends and Pinot Blanc. And then down the middle, you have some Pinot Noir being made. Maybe Chardonnay. a Gamay. Gamay. And then once you get to the southern part, uh, in the area where uh, Osius Lake is, 
you're going to have the more classic Bordelais style blends, Cab Merlot, Petit Verdot, and even some Syrah. And that's what you brought today, right? Yeah, I brought a wine that uh, I think is a really important wine in terms of the development of the region, because this, this dates all the way back to 1997, I believe they bought this property. And the group that bought this property is Group, uh, group Tayan. And Group Tayan is a conglomerate out of France, and they own Grad La Rose, hence the name Oceus, Oceus Lake, La Rose. Um, and the first taste I had of that one was actually the inaugural vintage, which was 2001, which if you do the math, we're talking three, four-year-old vines. They bought it in 97. They planted the vines shortly thereafter. By 2001, first vintage, they were young vines, but they had a Frenchman making the wine, a, a Bordelais uh, winemaker who made the wine. It's always been a French winemaker all throughout. And their first vintage was a Merlot-based uh, Bordeaux blend, and it was fantastic. I bought it from a retailer called Garagiste out of, out of Seattle, or else I never would have known about it. Uh, and it makes sense that Seattle would bring in some of these wines. And I love the one ever since then. I've always bought it automatic from Garagis. This is 2015, which was a warm vintage for them up there as well. It's got like a really nice herbal mm-hmm. like skeleton. The, yep. the internal structure of this wine is like very sound. It's not like a super fleshy example of Merlot. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good uh, tasting note on this because 2015 was a super ripe vintage for them. However, uh, these guys pick earlier. Um, and for the most part, Painted Rock, some of the other producers up there, they focus on how short the growing season is, but how long the days are. So the diurnal difference in temperature during some parts of the growing season, we're talking about 50-degree swings, real 50-degree swings. Yeah. The amount of sunlight in some of the region, there's 2,000 hours, legitimate hours of sunlight throughout a, a growing season is more than you'll even find in places like Napa. I was going to say, this is 14% alcohol. I think when people think of like, you know, uh, Canadian wine, they're not thinking of things that are this, like, big. And That's assertive. right. And, you know, 14% alcohol when you compare it to what's coming out of, like, Napa or Washington. Seems even, tame. Yeah, yeah. Seems tame. Yeah. But you can taste that, like, structure. You can taste that intensity. But there's still that, like, herbal, slight pyrazenic character to this wine. So. 100%. It still has – you can still pick out the quality of the varieties that make up the blend. And that's the key. And, and why I really love uh, this particular wine is that they've never uh, changed their philosophy. Matter, matter of fact, the group Tyon has continued to buy a Bordeaux winery, Bordeaux Chateau, uh, since then, hmm. uh, like Aubage Liberal and Chateau Ferrier and Margot, hmm. uh, and have brought them to a new level because it's more of a collaborative, uh, you know, you go spend some time at the BC, at the Osios uh, La Rose, um, vineyards, and then you go back to Bordeaux and compare the two. And by now, you can do the math on it. We're we're close to over twenty year old vines, um, and in this one, I, I'd say about fifteen year old vines, which is a really good um, point of development for for vines where they really start to show some more complexity. And there's really good drainage. The soils there are very uh, at the very at the top have excellent drainage. It's almost powder. Um, that comes from those glacial deposits. And so you have excellent drainage and you're able to really get those roots to dig in deep. And I think that's partially why this wine has some cuts some pedigree. It doesn't taste like a, like, it doesn't taste like a wine that's meant to be consumed, um, you know, two years after the vintage and not to think about it. Yeah. This is a wine to put away, to cellar, 
Uh, it, we're drinking it too young. It's five years old, but this is a baby. We opened it yesterday, and it's really just starting to show today. Uh, so, yeah, and, I, and I, I'm hoping somebody out there hears me. It's something that I'd love to do is figure out if a distributor would be interested in bringing multiple um, brands, multiple uh, labels from BC uh, to kind of show off the very best of what's out there here to Houston market. I'd like for us to be able to do it. In what Texas do you think is like the watershed moment that this region needs to gain that sort of success? Like what's going to have to happen? What's the equivalent of a judgment in Paris or some other major event for these wines to really kick off? I remember, I'm going to compare it to another place. I remember people never, never taking Chilean wine seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think most people still, still don't in terms of like, oh, I'm not going to pay $100 for a Chilean wine or $200 for I think there's Chilean still that wine. perception that it's all very... Ten and under. (laughs) Well, ten and under in that it's all dominated by like super like jalapeno-y, carmenere, you know, that really green character that that's all you're going to get out of those wines. Yeah, and that's definitely a marker of most of the wines down there. But there are some amazing projects that have come about in the last 10 years on the the heels of the success of a Cloapalca or Montez Alpha or uh, Irazeries, their top, uh, Dom Maximiano. Yeah. So is that what it takes? Does it take like a fucking $150 wholesale wine that's going to win like 100 points in some wine spectator that's going to push it over the map for BC? Is that what it's going to take? I hate to say that I would believe that it'd have to be partially that. It doesn't have to be complete. Not everybody uh, is, you know, is diehard on the numbers. However, this year has taught me a lot in terms of the numbers. Being on the distribution side, the wines that came up in the top 100 wine spectator I think this year an even bigger deal than they were 20 years ago when it was really a big deal and everybody only read Wine Spectator. Why? Because people are buying wine from home, going to restaurants less. And so they're depending on that information, almost like Bible. So tell me what yeah. to buy. I'm going to buy this because it got number one. Hmm. So the craze is being, plus the retail side is so much more active than the on-premise side in terms of wine sales, especially hmm. for high-end wine or whatever you want to call it, premium wine. Yeah. But what I was talking about specifically was a one time where one of the Chilean wineries, I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to say say the wrong one, but I think it was a Razzeries, but they put in their their flagship wine against the very best Bordeaux wines and the best Napa wine. Mm-hmm. But I believe it was first growth Bordeaux wines. They did it in Japan or China. I could get all this part of the story wrong, but the the moral I was of the story. When right? I was in Japan yeah. and in Beijing, like when I went to those cities, even Hong Kong. The love they have for Chilean wine. Yeah. Yeah, they love it there. And it's because the Chileans, the Chileans put the work in there to show on a very even, you know, on a very level playing field, please try our wines next to these wines and explain to me why you would pay 400 or 300 for this first growth Bordeaux or at this point, 250 to 350 for this top flight blue chip Napa cab. Yeah. And our wine in Japan, because... Once you export it, it's cheaper than Chile. Chile, their wine's more expensive there than it is outside, the mm. premium wine. Um, but you probably get in Japan the very best of what Chile has for 150 mm. uh, And then it beats in, the t- in a taste test. I think if BC put together some of their best examples of their wines, this one possibly included, maybe not, Painted Rock could be included, um, and did it in a blind against the very best, then that might, that story would have some impact. Similar to the, Paris tasting, you know, yeah. it would have some 
There it, we go. It would be a story to tell. Scores and tastings. I know. I hate to say it. The other thing would be if there were some kind of a just badass chef from there. Yeah. Who came to one of our big cities here, Chicago, San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. Because when I think of like Canadian chefs that are really popular, I'm thinking of chefs out of Toronto. Like yeah. people like Maddie Matheson. Yeah. You know? Toronto's got a huge food scene. There's yeah. a huge food scene there, but yeah. I imagine they're probably... Montreal probably, yeah. too. But when I think out west, I'm not thinking of a lot of, you know, celebrity chefs that are pushing those things. Yeah, but it could, but it could very well happen because you need to think once the tourism part starts to be more based on the wine or as much based on the wine as it is, we're going to go look at these beautiful landscapes in this part of BC, um, we, you'll start to see more serious restaurants open mm-hmm. in, in the region. But if I were to say in BC, the capital, I mean, the, I wouldn't call it the capital city, but it's, it's an attraction, is going to Victoria. Yeah. Uh, and Victoria, as it were, is an old school city where you could have high tea, you know, and, and, uh, and really feel like you've gone back in time. Uh, however, they probably have some great chefs there. Uh, and it's been a long time since I've been there, but I ha- did have a chance to go there. And I was like, food was pretty cool. Uh, the hotels were really swank and very old school. and you know, the service was super old school, like they're all over you. Um, and I thought about it. I think about uh, now that there's more wines coming from uh, that island uh, where Victoria is, there's like some Pinots and whatnot being grown, yep. that they might be able to translate that over to. Somebody has to have the balls to have a restaurant like the Herb Farb did in Washington and Woodenville to say, I'm going to do a seven course dinner with all food and seafood and beef and you know uh, anything you can imagine sourced locally or at least within bc um and then only pair wines from bc with it. Mm. that would play because herb farm did it for years and it became like a destination where you, you went there because you wanted to try eight badass wines that you might not have a chance to visit uh the winery and, and or the taste but, but i also wonder like from an identity standpoint right like this wine, always a French winemaker, you know, owned by a French conglomerate, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that that connotes a certain level of like legitimacy to these wines. Yeah. But if you're talking about a region and trying to establish it, right, saying that you're importing all these other factors from another country to this region, like, I feel like for this region to succeed, you need to have quintessentially British Columbian individuals, Canadians through and through pushing canadian wine yeah right? like yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what it's got to be i mean i understand that like michelle roland you know and many other people had their hand in canadian or not canadian but chilean wines and, and kind canadian of growth you're right but and, and canadian well tbqh right like yeah. every part of the world right that's like, right that's right let, let's be real he's got his hand in a lot of pots he's making wine in fucking armenia these days yeah he's yeah. all over the place right um but like beyond roland i mean and beyond chile i feel like for canada specifically right like any other region People want to feel like they're getting something that they can't get anywhere else, right? And like this wine's super delicious, but when you're telling me like French winemaker, French ownership, like French oak barrels, like yeah. I'm like, okay, well, where's the Canadian element to this, right? Yeah. So I want to see and feel and taste in this wine that granitic soil. I want to taste that like lake influence, the Pacific influence. I want to get that element out of the wine itself too. I want to get something that says Canada beyond BC VQA. You know, I want more than that on the label. You know, yeah. I want more than that from an aesthetic standpoint and a flavor standpoint. Agreed. And I think that's what's going to sell Canada more than anything else, especially as things get warmer and as that becomes more and more of a prime destination for grape growing. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I'd love to see. 
if it's a tourist destination, you've already got people going there and associating it. England's going through the same thing. I mean, shout out to another episode we did with Laura Rees, mm-hmm. but like England's going through that right now. Like it's not just like trying to mimic what you're making in Champagne. At this point, no, we're our own thing. Yes, there are some geologic and climactic similarities to Champagne, but let's own what we are and try and make something that's quintessentially British. You know? Yeah, yeah. And I think I think there's enough folks on the ground in BC area in Okanagan Valley who are, are flying that flag. Yeah. But I do believe that it's going to take a brand like this. Believe it or not, it's going to, to get them there. And that's yeah. what Chile needed as well. Because if you think about it, those wineries I named, their legitimacy, their the, the the additional dollars they added to their ticket price and the quality of their wine increased all from French folks coming over and. and and believe me, there were Chileans involved as no, well. No, and you know what? To be fair, like the Chilean wine that like got me into Chile, mm-hmm. right, was Louis Antoine Lute, right? I don't know if you know him. Really natty wine. He worked with LaPierre. He was like Beaujolais trained. Got it. French guy came and studied abroad in Chile and ended up staying. But like for me, in like the world of natural wine, his liter bottles of Pipeño Pais, those were my jam. And like yeah. when I was working at Houston's, I secretly got that shit on the menu it like appeared in the like, uh, yeah. yeah, it was bananas. We put the Carignan on the menu, I think. Wow. Not the Pais. I wasn't that crazy, but, yeah. but I put the Carignan on the menu. But like for me, like that was my introduction to like Chilean low intervention wine was Louis Antoine Luke, who at the end of the day is a French guy, right? Yeah. So, you know what? Point taken. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. Uh, th- I mean, there's a lot of European influence in all these countries. Like the Italians helped legitimize some of the Argentine wine uh, yeah. business. I-, I can tell you right now, my dad... When he was young, he, he would tell me stories that he would drive over to work in Bariloche. And if you stopped at one of the restaurants when they served you red wine, they always gave you a siphon of club soda with it. Oh, really? And he's like, well, what is, what's the club soda for? I don't, I'm not trying to drink club soda. Oh, it's to cut the wine because the wine was so bad. And, the, <laughs> and, the, and, you know, that's 40 years ago. Well, more than that now, 50 years ago. But still, it took, and the Argent, anybody who's Argent, from Argentina who's listening would probably dispute it. But it took some of the know-how from Chilean winemakers to come over and bring it along. And, of course, Italians were there as well. And the French showed up to Argentina as well. And all of those factors brought everything along. All the other stuff hap- can happen, has a license to happen after the fact. Hmm. You know, right? And, and I hate to say it, but it's the same way it's happened in Chile. You have some natural winemakers. There was a Brazilian couple that we visited while we were there who had all of eight acres is all they had. And they were experimenting with Viognier and, and they were doing natural wine. And, and they had a good following within Chile. But I think that ends up becoming more of a local thing until it grows into something bigger. Yeah. But in order for those guys to have legitimacy, to, those guys have an avenue towards getting somebody to help them fund it or do it themselves, you need to have some big guns that you can kind of ride the wave in on. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's what we're going to need. I mean, that, that's what BC is going to need for these dry ones. There's some people in the know, uh, certainly people who vacation there or who have homes up there who know the wines inside and out and probably keep it their secret. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think it's still a pretty well-kept secret for a country that's just north of us who's making wines at the same quality level. Well, I shouldn't say the same, but at the top is making wines that could compete with Great Washington Blends, that could compete with Great Washington Syrah, et cetera, et cetera. Hell yeah. Awesome, man. Thank you. This is a great wine, and this is a great combo. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Awesome, man. Thank you. This was good. Catch up soon. Yeah, let's do it again. Hell yeah. 
And that's the second half of our uh, two-part episode with Christian Barras. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing to Buy the Glass. If you don't subscribe, get on it. Hit that subscribe button wherever you stream your audio content. You can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, um, iHeartRadio is one out there that you can use. Uh, But we look forward to seeing you next week.